Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, Matthew 2, 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that by the end of this service, we will have true worship in our hearts for the coming of Christ. Lord, this is a season where we have so much to celebrate. The traditions, the songs, the colors, the smells in the air. There's so many things that we enjoy about this season. And yet, apart from seeing the the reality and the weight of sin, we'll never Rejoice and worship Christ, the King. The birth of Christ will become just another part of our culture that will pass away if we don't remember the reason why he came. And so I pray that our consciences would be filled with the word of God and we would love you more and worship you more because we have the mind of Christ, and we see what he came to accomplish and what he did. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to preach this Advent series, a series of sermons that don't really fit the popular narrative, but I'm concerned that we as Christians have a conscience that is held captive to the word of God. Without that, worship cannot happen Without that, faith doesn't exist. Without that, there's no salvation for us. What's the meaning of Christmas? We ask this question often, and this question is answered in a variety of ways. But the first two chapters of Matthew's gospel has five explicit fulfillment statements. More are implied even than these five, but these surround the birth of, just the birth and early, earliest days of Christ's life. And these statements teach that Jesus, in the very least, they teach that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And one of these fulfillment passages gets very little to no attention at all during the Christmas season. This would never be considered a marketable platform for the season as it is popularly celebrated. But both in regards to its significance to God's plan of redemption and the purpose for Christ's coming, 
and our salvation, it marks a perpetual and sober reminder to us that Jesus came in the world to save sinners. And this fulfillment is taken from Jeremiah the prophet. Chapter 31 in Jeremiah's prophecy, verse 15, he says, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Yesterday, my wife showed me a painting, and the painting showed a mother holding her newborn or young infant in her hands, and it's beautiful. And perhaps there's no more love, no more greater picture of love than that in the way that we see humanity lived out, a mother's love for her child. And a little background to that fulfillment is helpful before we come to it. In Matthew chapter 2, the chapter begins with the Magi's visit to Judea. And they go and they visit Herod the Great. That was this Herod. He was known as Herod the Great. And after the Magi tell Herod why they're there, to see the king born, uh, the king of the Jews, this child born the king of the Jews, Herod is full of unrest. The Greek word is translated troubled. And he is concerned. And Caesar Augustus said of Herod that it would be safer to be a servant in his house than one of his sons. And the reason why it would be safer to be a servant in the house of Herod than one of his sons is because of Herod's great lust for power. More than anything, Herod wanted to be powerful, he wanted to rule. He didn't want anyone second-guessing his place as the king of this region, of course, under Caesar. Once he heard of this child who was born king of the Jews, he thought, well, this is someone who would vie for my authority in this region. And he was troubled and he was agitated. And from the narrative, we can safely assume that it was Herod's plan to put an end to this child all along. He tries to get the Magi to go see where Jesus has been born and then come back and tell me, I want to give him gifts, I want to lavish good things upon him. And we know from the narrative this was not Herod's intention. And so the Magi are warned there to flee, and in fact they don't go back to Herod. We read in verse 12, they return to their country. And then in verse 13 we see that Joseph is warned to take the child and mother and go to Egypt and remain there until they're told to return. And in this sense, Jesus would come out of Egypt just as it was prophesied. And yet, this is not where we find the fulfillment that I want to focus on and that Jeremiah spoke on in Jeremiah 31. We know how Herod intended to search out the child when we read in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region, those are important words, and in all that region who were two years old or under, 
according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Now, it's very easy to see why this wouldn't make it into any marketing schemes of the season. The wise men will be there in every narrative and nativity, but we will not have this scene displayed in our house. This is an awful scene. This is an awful holocaust in history. In the earliest days of Christ's life on this earth, And yet this very thing serves as a witness to us to remind us of why Christmas took place. The heinousness of sin and the wages of it. The reality of it. What it brings to God's creation and to his people bears witness to why God sent his son into the world. And this evil isn't the first time nor the last time we see this sort of thing happen. This is sort of a fulfillment of a shadow that happened thousands of years earlier in Egypt. Do you remember that? you remember the whole story about Moses? That's another theme that we like to think about, this baby in a basket floating in the river Nile gently down the stream. And it's comforting. And you know why that baby was in that basket? Because there was a decree from the Pharaoh. Israel is getting too big. They're too healthy. They're too strong. My authority and my power is at risk. And so we're going to kill all of the male children, too, and younger. Exodus 1.22, the Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And Pharaoh's murderous purpose preceded God's redemption of Israel. And so is Herod's murderous purpose preceded God's plan of redemption for the world. You see, Moses was delivered through that basket. And Christ being born in that stable would be the means whereby his people would be delivered. Just as Moses would be the means by Israel being brought out of Egypt. God's plan and redemption is being carried out even in these most awful and atrocious atrocious scenarios. What was once the cry in Israel, or in Egypt, in Gershom, was now the cry of the mothers in Ramah. Now, Ramah was a town very near Bethlehem, in the region of Bethlehem, just as Jeremiah had prophesied. Ramah was a town that was no doubt affected in the same way Bethlehem was. And Rachel, it talks about as her being the, the one who cries out because her children were not. Rachel is a term that spoke generally of the mothers in Israel. Bethlehem is where Rachel was born, who was the mother, so to speak, of the Jewish people. The wife, the beloved wife of Jacob, who herself was barren. And now the mothers in this region, because of Herod's evil and the evil of the Roman soldiers and the evil to murder their sons, there is such a cry of agony that the mothers in Bethlehem are grieving. Now, I've read this hymn or this poem before, and I think it's a way to kind of get on the inside of what that must have been like. Because we do this so often when we come to Scripture. 
we think about this horrible thing and we only read the words on the page and we don't consider what's actually taking place. And I think it's important for us to remember these things and to consider them. What happens when an army comes to destroy your two-year-old and younger children? What kind of evil does that look like? And so I'm going to read this poem that I think takes a look into what very well may have been a normal situation during this terrible time. It's a poem by John Piper called The Innkeeper, and you've heard it probably before. It's a, it's a little bit long, but stay with me. Jake's wife would have been 58 the day that Jesus passed the gate of Bethlehem and slowly walked towards Jacob's inn. The people talked with friends and children played along the paths and Jesus hummed a song and smiled at every child he saw and slowly went to find the place where he was born. Folks said the inn had never been a place for sin, for Jacob was a holy man and he and Rachel had a plan to marry, have a child or two and serve the folk who followed through. They'd rise up early and stay up late to help the pilgrims go and come. And when the peace place was full to some, especially the poorest, they would say, we're sorry, there's no room, but stay now. If you like out back, there's lots of hay and we have extra cots that you can use. There'll be no charge. The stable isn't very large, but Noah keeps it safe. He was a wedding gift to Jake because the shepherds knew he loved the dog. There's nothing in the Decalogue, he used to joke, that says a man can't love a dog. The children ran ahead of Jesus as he strode towards Jacob Inn, Jacob's inn. The Lord knocked once, then twice before. He heard an old man's voice, round back, he called. So Jesus took the track that led around the inn. The old man leaned back in his chair and told the dog to never mind. Ain't had no one to tend the door, my lad, for 30 years. I'm sorry for the inconvenience to your sore feet. The road to Jerusalem is hard, ain't it? Don't mind old Shem, he's harmless like his dad. Won't bite a Roman soldier in the night. Sit down and Jacob weaved, waved the stump of his right arm. We're in a slump right now. Got lots of time to think and talk. Come sit and have a drink. From Jacob's well, he laughed. You own the inn, the Lord inquired. On loan, you'd better say, God owns the inn. At that, the Lord knew that they were kin and ventured on. Do you recall the tax when Caesar said to all the world that each must be enrolled? Old Jacob winced. Are north winds cold? Are deserts dry? Do fish swim and ravens fly? I do. A grim and awful year it was for me. He raised the stump of his right arm. So dazed, young man. I didn't know I'd lost my arm. Do you know what it costs for me to house the Son of God? The old man took his cedar rod and swept it around the place, empty. For 30 years alone, you see, old Jacob, poor old Jacob runs it with one arm, a dog and no sons, but I had sons once. Joseph was my firstborn. He was small because his mother was so sick. When he turned three, the Lord was good to me and Rachel and our baby Ben was born. The very fortnight when the blessed family arrived, and Rachel's gracious heart contrived a way for them to stay there in that very stall. The man was thin and tired. You look a lot like him. But Jesus said, why was it grim? We got a reputation here that night. 
nothing at all to fear in that we thought it was of God. But in one year the slaughter squad from Herod came, and where do you suppose they started? Not a clue. We didn't have a clue what they had come to do. No time to pray, no time to run, no time to get poor Joseph off the street and let him say goodbye to Ben or me or Rachel. Only time to see a lifted spear smash through his spine and chest. He stumbled to the sign that welcomed strangers to the place and looked with panic at my face as if to ask what he had done. Young man, have you ever lost a son? The tears streamed down the Savior's cheek. He shook his head but couldn't speak. Before I found the breath to scream, I heard the words, a horrid dream. Kill every child who's two or less. Spare not for aught, nor make excess. Let this one be the oldest here. And if you count your own life dear, let none escape. I had no sword, no weapon in my house, but Lord, I had my hands, and I would save the son of my right hand. So brave. Oh, Rachel was so brave. Her hands were like a thousand iron bands around the boy. She wouldn't let him go, and so her own back met with every thrust and blow. I lost my arm, my wife, and my sons. The cost for housing the Messiah here. Why would he simply disappear and never come to help? They sat in silence, and Jacob wondered at the stranger's tears. I am the boy that Herod wanted to destroy. You gave my parents room to give me life, and then God let me live and took your wife. Ask me not why the one should live and another die. God's ways are high, and you will know in time. But I have come to show you what the Lord prepared the night you made a place for heaven's light. In two weeks they will crucify my flesh, but mark this, Jacob. I will rise in three days from the dead and place my foot upon the head of him who has the power of death. And I will raise with life and breath your wife and Ben and Joseph too, and give them, Jacob, back to you. With everything the world can store, and you will reign with me forevermore. Now that poem gets very deeply into what must have been the site of Bethlehem. This is the wages of sin. This is the wages of it. And that's not the last time in history we'll see such things happen. The 20th century was the bloodiest century on record. A hundred million people died because of communism. Most of them, their own people. That's not even considering Nazi Germany and what happened in the Second World War at their hands. That's not even counting the murders and the rapes, and the adultery, the abortions. This is a world full of sin, and it still is. And you still have people asking that question. We house the Son of God. And where were you? This torrent of evil is part of the biblical record of Christmas. And it stands as a continual reminder of sin and hatred for God and his creation and his creatures that to this day is with us. And it tells us of why Christ came. 
It reminds us of why he came. And the importance of remembering such events is that it helps us remember the significance of what Christ came and indeed accomplished in his coming. The Christmas story is nothing more than tradition and nostalgia and will only pass away into meaningless obscurity if we don't keep in mind that Christ came into the world to save sinners. A world beset by sin, under the curse because of our sin. But as we read this narrative, we need to remember that when we celebrate Christmas, we do not celebrate Christmas apart from the rest of the life of Christ. And may I say to you this morning that there is one greater evil than this narrative that we just read about these children. And that's the narrative of the cross. That man, that sinful man put to death, the God-man who never sinned on the cross was the greatest evil this world had ever seen. And you know what the scripture says of that day? That in the cross, Christ won the victory over our sin and over our enemy. There is no peace on earth, they said, says the songwriter. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. This is one of the things we still wrestle with today. We look out at even what unseen things, not even just purposeful armies do, but even the curse that lays upon us. We're seeing that this year quite dramatically with COVID. 275 Americans have died this year. And where do we find hope? As in the days of Christ's birth, we cannot find it in ourselves. We cannot find it in the government. Beloved, we cannot find it in science. And I appreciate our lives that God gave to us. I appreciate our government that God has given us. I appreciate scientists. And yet salvation and hope cannot come through these things for those beset by sin. Governments might be more or less just on a scale. We ourselves might be more or less just when we judge ourselves among ourselves. Scientists as often as wrong as they are right, and they will tell you that if they're true scientists. And sometimes evil is promoted by all of these things to the degree that all of these things promote such atrocities as we did see last century. And we will see again until Christ returns. So where is our hope found? Our hope is found in that God sent his son into the world. He gave his son as a propitiation for the sins of all who would believe on his name. The Bible says that peace is found with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. 
since we have been justified by faith, that's faith in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, death is going to come because sin is still in the world. But when we are in Christ, God sees in us not our own sin, but Christ, and there is where life and joy and hope is found. Here is how Titus says it. Titus 3, 3 and 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving, and kind, loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, how do you think that appeared? It appeared in the person of Christ. It appeared at his coming. He saved us, not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. This is why we celebrate Christmas. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is why we have hope. This is the only reason we have hope. In this life and the life to come. But it is the reason for hope. During the Christmas season, if we forget about sin, we forget about Christ and what he's come to do. But when we remember the reality of not only the world's sin, not only the scene in Bethlehem and that horrific acts, those horrific acts of sin and the subsequent generations and centuries that have followed when we remember our own sin. And we remember that the wages of our own sin is, jet, is death, and that the wrath of God abides on those, everyone, who stands outside of the reconciling blood of the Lamb. When we remember that, we are sobered enough then to rejoice that Christ came for the purpose of saving sinners. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 16. This is our hope. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain or futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also. In Christ shall all be made alive. And so then look at how he ends this chapter. 
O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. There's our hope. Without Christ, without his birth, without his perfect life, without his death on our behalf, and without the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are without hope. But because of all those things, when we look on this world that's still seeing the effects of sin, if we are in Christ, we have victory over it through him. And therefore, here's our response. My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we rejoice in this season of Christmas, not because we look out in this world and we see this world is perfect without sin, and without sorrow, and without oppression, and without murder, and without uh, sinful governments, and without sinful hearts of the people. And we see sin all around us. We see it in ourselves. We celebrate Christmas because Christ accomplished for us what we could never accomplish by ourselves. He made peace with you through the blood of his own body through the breaking of his body on the cross, through his perfect life, through the redemption that comes through him now in the resurrection of our Lord, we have life. We have it more abundantly than ever it was had before he was on the earth. And we have the promise of eternal life. And death cannot hold us. It's in vain for it to hold us because Christ our Savior lives. And so as we remember, Lord, sin that's in the world, help us to remember and rejoice in the Christ who was born to save sinners. Help us to go out of this worship this morning, telling people not just to remember the traditions and the past and the songs and the colors and the smells and to be thankful for them, but to remember the Savior the one who came to save his people from their sins and who, if they would believe, they too would have eternal life through Jesus Christ. This is what the world needs now. And we pray that this would be accomplished according to your gracious and merciful plan. In Jesus' name, amen.